0: Please take seats, uh, and is going to come and read to us.
1: The reading is 2 Samuel chapter 6, and can be found on page 309 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of obed edom the Gittite. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the Ark of the Lord and set it it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said... How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes." But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well evening everyone, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you tonight, though I must confess I'm not used to preaching with such surroundings, so um, let's pray. <laughs> Father, yes, the words of those last song are our prayer, would you speak to us, would you speak to us of your Son by your Spirit that we might be transformed uh, into greater love for him and greater likeness of him, and we pray that in his name. Amen. Now, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to hazard a guess that if you woke up one morning to find encouragement from the Scriptures, to have your hearts and your minds fixed again on Jesus, then 2 Samuel 6 wouldn't be so high on the list. Because it's a startling set of incidents, isn't it? And I think raises some huge questions for us about who God is and what he's like. And just at the beginning of our time together, I want us just each to take a moment just to ask ourselves how we respond to this passage. I want us to take note of our immediate reaction to the events of this passage. And just hold on to that, because we'll come back to it. Uh, a little bit later on. But as we jump into this passage, we meet King David again. And if you've been here the past few weeks, uh, you've been journeying with him, a journey to be King of Israel. Uh, last week he's, we saw him become King of Israel and conquer the city of Jerusalem, which had become a really important city in the Bible. And he set to work doing the job of King. Again, last week we saw him conquer the enemies of his people. And in chapter 6, we see David's next move as king. And it's a move that centers around this thing called the Ark of God. Or you might know it as the Ark of the Covenant. And you can see that there in verses 1 to 5. David wants to bring the Ark of God to Jerusalem, what would be the capital of the nation. What's that all about? Why, why does he want to do that as one of his first moves as king? Well, we've got to ask ourselves first, what is the Ark of God? Some of us may know loads about the, the Ark of God. Some of us might know what we know just from Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Some people are smiling. But it's a really important object in the Bible, really important object in the Bible. And we get a clue there in verse two as to what it is. See there, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord God Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. So the ark's this piece of furniture made just after the exodus, and it's a throne. Not just any old throne, it's God's throne. The ark of God is God's throne. Now, just as a little aside, because I I couldn't resist it, if you want to think a little bit more about the ark of the covenant and what it is, compare this description of the ark of the covenant with John's description of Jesus' tomb at the resurrection, and see if you can spot any similarities. Don't do it now, afterwards, okay? (laughs) See what you find. But this Ark of the Covenant, it represents God's rule and his reign. It represents God as king. The Lord as king. But even more than that, it, it's about the presence of God. It's about the presence of the Lord. Because remember, it's the Lord who is enthroned between the cherubim. Just Just, um, there's there's an incident in 1 Samuel 4, you don't need to turn to it now, and we won't go into all the details, but there's an incident where the Ark of God actually ends up being in the Philistines' camp. Remember Goliath's from, uh, he's a Philistine, and this Ark of God ends up being in the camp of the Philistines, and and when the, the Philistines hear that the Ark of God has come into their camp, they are absolutely terrified. And the reason they give, they say, when they hear that the Ark of God's come into their camp, they say, a God has come into our camp. 1 Samuel 4, verse 7. And so even the Philistines, the enemies of God, know that where the Ark is, the Lord is. And this here, it's the Lord Almighty who sits on the throne, on this throne. The Lord Almighty, whom Isaiah meets in in, in Isaiah chapter 6, and who who John, in John 12, he tells us that that's Christ that Isaiah saw. Christ is the Lord Almighty seated between the cherubim. And so, this ark of God is where Christ is seated as king. And David wants it moved. Why? Why? Well, we find out in the Bible that the, the ark had been on the margins of the kingdom, literally, for 20 years. Throughout Saul's reign, the ark of the covenant was not at the center of the kingdom. It was in some person's house on the margins of the kingdom, on the edge. And that's really symbolic of, of Saul's reign, the previous king to, to David, that the Lord really was on the margins of the kingdom. The Lord really was on the periphery of Saul's heart. But David, he wants to bring the throne of God into the heart of the kingdom, into the heart of his reign, into the heart of his heart. He's wanting to do what a good king should do, putting the Lord at the center of his reign, not on the outskirts He's seeking to be a follower before a leader. And we can see that this move, it's full of good intentions. It's a move full of good intentions of putting the Lord at the center of the kingdom. And so David sets to work and he he goes all out, doesn't he? We see it there in the first few verses. He gets 30,000 of his best men and he even gets a new cart made. For the Ark of the Covenant to transport it. Only the best for the Ark of God. And he gets User, Uzza, sorry, <laughs> Uzzah, and Ahio, the guys who've been looking after the Ark of the Covenant for, for a few years, to walk beside it, presumably to look after it. And he gets his band out, all the musicians. And it's like this incredible worship fest. Now, perhaps you can imagine the scene, An amazing worship, joy and celebration. David and all his people singing, arms outstretched, worshipping the Lord. Later on, we're going to be singing, Be Thou My Vision. And although it wasn't written back then, I can imagine them singing that, you know, that fourth verse. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, the first in my heart, high King of heaven my treasure, thou art. I can imagine David singing that. You know, Lord, I want you first in my heart. You know, Saul didn't do that, but I'm going to. Surely, surely the Lord must have been pleased with all of this. Well, as they're on the way, the oxen carrying the ark stumbles, and Uzzah, perhaps worrying that the ark is going to fall, reaches out and touches the ark of God. And the Lord strikes him down. So many good intentions. Good intentions to bring Christ to the center of the kingdom. Good intentions perhaps to stop the ark of God falling to the ground. Good intentions that all lead to the death of a man at the Lord's hands. Why do so many good intentions lead to a man's death? Well, because good intentions are not necessarily God's intentions. Good intentions are not necessarily God's. Intentions. You might know that famous saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You see, David and others' actions actually reveal huge problems in their thinking about who God is. Which is why I asked you at the beginning to, to just take note of how, how do you react to this passage? What, what feelings does it conjure up in you? Perhaps we react like David there in verse 8, angry with the Lord, or perhaps afraid of him. Perhaps some of us might think, surely the punishment is too severe for the crime. Well, I hope and I'm sure there are people who reacted differently to that, and that's great. But actually, what was our reaction? And what does it reveal about us? What does it reveal to us about how We think about God. I'm going to confess when I uh, heard that I was preaching this passage, turned to it again, not read it for a little while, and it's like I was asking myself, did that really need to happen? Did the Lord really need to strike that man down? And that way of thinking in me exposed again. My need for the gospel of Christ. Why do I say that? Well, come with me to 1, 1 Chronicles 15. You might want to turn to it um, if, if you like. Just a, you know, a good Bible tip that I'm sure we all know. That uh, if you've got a passage in the Bible and we're kind of not sure what's going on, it's always good to see where else in the Bible that, that incident is, is talked about. And actually, this, this, these events of 2 Samuel 6 are brought up again in 1 Chronicles 13 and 15. But just 1 Chronicles 15, and actually uh, verse 13, David is reflecting on all of this that's just happened, and the death of Uzzah. And he realizes things have gone wrong. And so he calls all of the Levites one of the tribes of Israel. And he says to them this, It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time, the ark of God, That the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Interesting. The Lord had a prescribed way of moving the ark. And the Lord's totally clear about this prescribed way. Take Numbers 4 for example. Numbers 4 tells us that it was the job of one of the clans of the Levites, the Kohathites, to move the ark. It was their job and theirs alone. They had to get a blue curtain to cover the ark. And they carried it not on a cart, but with poles to make sure that they didn't touch it. And the reason being that they had to do things that way was that we find out in Numbers 4 that they might not die. So the Lord had been clear, totally clear with the rules and the consequences of disobeying those rules. And David and Uzzah had completely ignored them. But we might ask, well, why is God so specific about all this? Why all the rules? Is he just picky? Well, actually, if any of us in here are parents... Or teachers or interact with kids at all. I don't think I have to prove to you the value of rules, and I don't think I, I would have to prove to you that, that rules can come from a compassionate heart. If you don't believe that, go and talk to a parent later on. My my daughter Evangeline, she's eighteen months old. I'm getting so many sermon illustrations from her; it's brilliant. Um, she's eighteen months old, and uh, for those of you who know her, she's always on the go, and In recent weeks, she's learnt to climb. But uh, she's not content with just climbing onto the sofa, for example. She has to get up to the arm of the sofa. And not just stand there, but run across it. And every time she does it, my heart's like pounding. Terrified. And so now, one of the rules in our house is no climbing on the armrest of the couch. Now that rule's not there because I want to limit her. ...or harm her, it's because I love her. It's because I want to see her safe and flourishing. And the rules about the ark of God were there because God loves his people... ...and wants to see them safe and flourishing. Because actually we see with the story of Obed-Edom there in verses 10 and 11... ...that the Lord's intention is to bless his people with his presence... Not condemn them. Obed-Edom. I was telling uh, Maria, I loved this guy growing up. Um, he, he, was a, he was a bit of a hero of mine. You can read more about him in the Bible. I just think it would be amazing, wouldn't it, to have the ark of God in your house. He was also a Gittite. Have a look at, uh, at what they're up to in the Bible. It's uh, interesting. But again, with his story, the Lord wants to bless people with his presence. But it's got, and here's the thing, it's got to be on his terms. Not anyone else's. Not David's. Not others', Not ours. Because the rules about the ark of God, the rules about how it's transported, just show that you cannot just move God about on your own terms like David thought. We live in a world, in a society that thinks that we can do that. God's whoever I want him to be. I'll believe in God when he performs a magic trick in front of me. I'll believe in God when it suits me, maybe on my deathbed. It's on my terms, not not God's. But also, the rules show that you cannot just approach the presence of God however we wish. That's what us are believed. I can just come up to the throne of God. I can just touch it. If I fancied a cuppa with with the queen, I couldn't just go waltzing up to Buckingham Palace. I'd be stopped long before I got uh, to the front door. We can't just waltz up to the presence of the Lord. But again, we hear this sort of talk when people say, you know, I can make my own way to God without Jesus. Or I've got a connection to the divine I have no need for Jesus. That, that's terrifying. And, it, and it's that kind of upside down thinking that's exposed in this passage. Because just look from verse 12 onwards. David does it all again. He recognizes, he's seen that the Lord blesses Obed-Eden with his presence. And he recognizes he's done it all wrong. He's done things with good intentions, but he's done it on his own terms, not the Lord's. And see what he does. David, 1 Chronicles 15, we find out he gets the right people this time. And he does everything in the right way. But there's something in 2 Samuel 6 that's striking about what he does. See there in verses 13 and 17. The amount of sacrifices. Like the priest carried the ark and after six steps, he's like, stop We need to sacrifice. We need to do some sacrifices. And then, when the ark of God arrives to the place where it's meant to be, he does a whole load more sacrifices. Why? Well, because David finds God's intentions in the scriptures and he carries them out. He learns that we can't just approach the presence of God as and when and how we decide, no matter how good our intentions, that it takes blood. And sacrifice to approach the presence of God. It takes blood and sacrifice to approach the presence of God. But here's the amazing twist. The Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim, he would shed his own precious blood that we might be brought into the presence of God. All those sacrifices that David offered that day were little pictures of the sacrifice that the Lord enthroned between the cherubim would would make. To enable people like you and me to come into the presence of the living God and know his blessing, not his condemnation. Isn't it a gracious miracle today when we read stories like this? That though each one of us, and we've already done confession, though each one of us daily transgress the laws of God, that we aren't struck down. And praise God that our standing before God is not about our good intentions, but our standing before God is based upon the gospel of a God who would sacrifice himself for us. So that we might be brought into the presence of God as children, loved wholly and completely, saved for a life of love that flows from His love for us, as we were singing about earlier. A life that seeks to put Christ at the center, but in the way that He lays out, not us. It's not about our good intentions, but about God's intentions. And that's what David gets in the end. He forgot the scriptures but obediently turned back to the scriptures to do things God's way, not his. He, he didn't abandon this godly pursuit to put Christ at the center of the kingdom. He did, but he does it right the second time. David repents even when it costs him the favor of his own wife, Michal, there at the end. She recoils at the way that David repents. But the Lord looks upon David and his repentance and obedience with favor. And blessing. Well, as we draw to an end, we're going to eat together afterwards, and I hope that as many people can will stay for that. It's a great time for fellowship. Maybe we can just ask this question to one another. I think it'll come up on the screen. What does it mean to have Jesus at the center of our lives and our church community on his terms, not ours? David sought to put the Lord at the centre of his reign and kingdom, but he started out by doing so on his own terms, albeit with good intentions, not the Lord's. We saw he repented, and he obediently listened to the Lord in the end. Maybe we can discuss this question together later. We've had the beginning of an answer in in this time together. Let's keep the conversation going. What does it look like in real terms to have Jesus at the centre of our lives and our church community? Well, this passage challenges us to ask when seeking to put Christ at the centre, do we start with our good intentions or God's? This passage calls us to recognise that we can only approach God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's take time to ask this question to one another later and may we know the deep blessings and joy of the presence of Christ in the center of our lives and our church for God's glory amen